An extremely warm welcome to the December Practical Neurology Editor's Choice podcast. I'm Amy Ross-Russell. I'm a neurology registrar in Southampton. I've been doing these podcasts for about a year and I really love them, but I'd really love to hear some more reviews. Thank you to uh, those people who've done one already, but if you'd like to leave us a review, please do so on the iTunes page. Reminder that there's not just this podcast, there's also an editor's highlight podcast, which Garrett Fuller and Phil Smith do for each edition of Practical Neurology. And you can subscribe to get those to your phone or other device just on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. So today it's a total delight to welcome both an old and a new friend. Uh, Dr. Jeremy Reese is a neurologist at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. He specialises in the management of low-grade brain tumours and complications of cancer and cancer treatment. And he was one of the neurologists who inspired and encouraged me to pursue neurology. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you very much, Amy. And Dr. Michael Cosmin is a consultant clinical oncologist at University College London Hospital and at the National Hospital. And he specialises in the use of radiotherapy and chemotherapy uh, for central nervous system tumours. Michael, very warm welcome. It's it's really lovely to have non-neurologists on the podcast too. Thank you very much, Amy. It's lovely to join you. So it's a real treat to talk today about the December Practical Neurology Editor's Choice. It's radiation and the nervous system. It's a wonderful summary of a topic. It's a a topic which is outside most neurologists, I would say, comfort zone, certainly my own. And I've learned loads from reading your review in detail. I'd really encourage listeners to download it. You can do that from the link in the blurb at the bottom of the podcast and take your time going through it because it's, it's really full of useful information and a great reference. Michael, I wonder if we could start with you just to get to grips with some of the basics of radiation and radiotherapy and, and perhaps a little glossary for some non-oncologists. First of all, what is radiotherapy and what do we use it for? Um, so, Amy, that's a big question, but essentially radiotherapy is the use of ionising radiation for treatment of disease. And we mostly think about that as external beam radiotherapy, meaning beams of radiation coming out of a machine aimed at a target, but um, there is also radiation that can be delivered in the form of molecular radiotherapy, uh, either used for diagnostics in our nuclear medicine departments in the hospitals or for therapy such as radio iodine therapy. So radiotherapy has a a kind of a long history in the use of, of management of disease, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in the in the next few minutes, I'm sure. And um, why do we use radiotherapy over surgery or, or, or other therapies? It has a, a very different role to play. Surgery has limitations, particularly around critical structures. And one of the benefits of radiation treatment is that it is not limited in its ability to pass through tissue. So it can get into all the awkward places that the surgeons struggle to get to. It of course has a very different biological effect to uh, surgical resection, for example, but nevertheless, it it enables us to treat tumours or treat diseases that surgeons can't adequately get at, or in fact, treat adjuvantly, so treat diseases after surgical resection. That's fantastic. And just a couple of words, if I may, before we get going. So stereotactic radiosurgery and radiotherapy and uh, proton beam therapy and gamma knife, if you would. Yeah. Okay. So um, these are all different platforms, different machines for delivering ionizing radiation. Most of these machines deliver photon or X-ray based radiotherapy treatments. So stereotactic radiosurgery or radiotherapy is just a term that we use to describe 
a shorter course of more intensive radiotherapy, focusing a more peaked dose or a hotspot of dose in the center of a target. Um, it's often used for small tumors. Um, Gamma Knife is a machine that delivers stereotactic radiosurgery. Um, and CyberKnife is another machine that does the same thing. The difference between radiosurgery and, and stereotactic radiotherapy is usually the number of treatments. So we think of a single treatment session. If a treatment can be delivered as a one-off, it's stereotactic radiosurgery. If it's a number of sessions, it's stereotactic radiotherapy. The bulk of radiation, though, is given in what we call a fractionated treatment, so given over several weeks on a standard linear accelerator. Proton beam therapy is very different. It's a particle therapy, so it's not an X-ray based treatment. It's a particle therapy. The way that I like to explain the difference between the two is standard radiotherapy. Um, it's like shining a torch out into a dark night. The, the brightness of the torch reduces the further away you go from it, but it never really stops. Whereas a particle therapy like protons, it's like throwing a table tennis ball or a marble. And the more energy you give it, the further it goes, but it has a clear place where it stops. And that's the benefits of protons is that it stops at a particular point and there is no dose of radiation beyond that. So the radiation physics are very different and we take advantage of that in, uh, in certain cases. That's brilliant, that's so clear. That's great. And you mentioned uh, fractions and spreading your doses over fractions. That's really important uh, from reading the paper. Why is that so important? Why do we need to split those doses? Yeah, so, so radiotherapy has its effect on cells essentially by a combination of direct lethal damage and sublethal damage. And it's the sublethal damage that can be repaired. And by fractionating our treatment, what we do is we give a total dose of treatment split up into usually several dozen small uh, identical fractions, as we call them, or separate treatment episodes. And giving a smaller dose each time allows the healthy tissues around our target to repair the sublethal damage. So it allows us to get a higher dose of treatment overall into our target by allowing the surrounding tissues to repair. Finally, Michael, for now, it struck me as I read the review that one of the really crucial steps in, in recognising the complications of therapy is appreciating that previous radiotherapy might be relevant to a patient's neurological syndrome, so perhaps for an unrelated cancer. It's reassuringly frequent on the podcast that we come back to emphasising how important thorough history taking is, and it also really emphasises how important your review is. But of course, not all cancer is relevant, and we want to make sure we're getting the right information when we're taking a history and a patient mentions a previous cancer or, or treatment with radiotherapy, what are the details that we need to know and how should we be working with oncologists to sort out what's relevant? So I think that's a really good question because radiotherapy is a focused treatment. It should really only have meaningful effects in the anatomical location that is treated. So unlike drug therapies, for example, we would only expect radiation to have the effect where it was treated. So if a patient reports having had a cancer history or a, a radiotherapy treatment history, it's important to get a, an idea from the patient where on the body that was given. Um, some patients have had total body irradiation, but usually it's a focused form of radiotherapy to a particular location. So the questions really is, when was the radiotherapy treatment delivered? How many weeks of treatment did the patient have? Was it solely external beam radiotherapy or did they have a top up of radiotherapy dose, for example, with internal radiotherapy, which we call brachytherapy? And I think any details beyond that, I think the message really on this 
kind of podcast should be if you want more information about the radiotherapy treatment your patient has had before just contact their clinical oncologist and ask for the information um, we are very keen to hand this information on it can be delivered in the form of a kind of written description or actually more usefully sometimes a screenshot of where the radiation dose has gone anatomically and that will quite quickly make it clear whether or not the previous radiotherapy treatment is likely to have any implication or relevance to what it is you're seeing the patient for yourself. Thank you. That's a sensational start. And it's, it's really given us a framework for understanding these treatments and a reminder that we've got some friends out there to help us uh, with these patients. So, Jeremy, if I've understood them, I'm coming to you because I, I want to put this in a clinical context. If I've understood the, the mechanism of action application, we've got DNA a range of DNA damage, killing cells, so you lose the function of those cells, be it neuron, glia, oligodendrocytes or in endothelial cells. You've got inflammation as a result of that damage. And then you've got the consequences of loss of connection and loss of cells. And then perhaps longer term, you've got DNA damage that doesn't repair properly, which increases your, your secondary risk of tumours. Would, would you say that's the right sort of translation to clinical uh, implications? Yes, Amy, I think that's absolutely right. What we often see with radiation, and I would just probably emphasise at this stage, that radiation is pretty much the only treatment that we have in our therapeutic armamentarium that can cause its damage many years, sometimes decades down the line, through, as you've already alluded to, um, incomplete DNA damage repair, and also progressive fibrosis, which occurs as a result of, uh, of the initial inflammation. Uh, in addition to the cell death in the nervous system of the neurons themselves, we also know that radiation damages endothelial cells, and this can lead to accelerated vascular disease and a range of different vascular complications. So that sort of muddies the waters. So if we're thinking about the brain, first of all, and we're thinking about those mechanisms in the brain, do they explain the acute encephalopathy and the early delayed encephalopathy that you see in patients who've received radiation? So we think that the acute encephalopathy, which, which I would stress is, is extraordinarily rare nowadays, in, in the days before surgeons were more enthusiastic about removing large tumours, patients would often have undebulked a massive tumour in their brain and then they're given a large dose of radiotherapy. And not surprisingly, the first thing that happens with radiotherapy is that you, there's some cellular swelling, there's some breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. And it's not surprising that patients can develop symptoms and signs of raised intracranial pressure, sometimes quite dramatically. So I think acute encephalopathy is fortunately very, very rare. What's much more common is the early delayed radiation encephalopathy, which is an oxymoron, early delayed. But what, what this implies is that it occurs early on after the end of the radiation treatment. And this is something which needs to be emphasized to patients that although they get through six weeks of treatment and they think they've got away with it, uh, the symptoms can then start uh, a couple of weeks afterwards and go on for a few months after the end of radiotherapy. And we think that that is caused by a combination of transient demyelination, there's some blood-brain barrier disruption and uh, some oligodendroglial injury. And presumably they present with a, a cognitive syndrome, do they, a, a general encephalopathy? 
yeah, I think encephalopathy may be a, a, a little bit uh, a, a strong term. Uh, they, they certainly feel the most common symptom is fatigue, drowsiness. Uh, there is something called the somnolence syndrome, uh, which was initially actually described in children receiving radiation treatment for ringworm. Uh, they can be worsening of, of focal, pre-existing focal neurological deficits, but there can also be some cognitive deficits. So people often say that they've got brain fog, their memory is impaired, they're not able to concentrate for as long. So sort of more sort of generalised symptoms. Very rarely do they become, you know, frankly encephalopathic. And this syndrome usually lasts a few weeks. It is reversible. Uh, we treat severe cases with uh, steroids, which I'm at pains to, to say we, we try and keep people on as low a dose of steroids for as, as short a term as possible. But sometimes it's absolutely necessary to keep patients who've had brain radiotherapy on dexamethasone for some weeks after the end of the treatment in order to get them through this early delayed period. And that's treating the sort of inflammatory response, is it, to yeah. the to yeah. the demyelination? Right. And hopefully yeah. that does settle completely and patients, you know, make a full recovery. And I think it's really important to state that there are no known long-term effects of an early delayed radiation cephalopathy. And this needs to be very clearly delineated from the much more severe and irreversible late complications, which by definition have to start at minimum six to 12 months after the end of radiotherapy. Yeah. And what about pseudoprogression? So uh, that's uh, presumably when it appears to get worse after people have been treated, but isn't actually a poor response to treatment. Yes, yeah, so pseudoprogression uh, has been known about following radiotherapy for, for donkey's years, but it was actually the when the management of glioblastoma changed about 15 years ago to include chemotherapy at the same time as radiotherapy with a drug called temozolomide, uh, we were seeing this phenomenon known as pseudoprogression much more commonly. And the characteristics of pseudoprogression was that the tumour appeared to be getting larger on the MRI scans. There was a contrast enhancement, again, just that's simply a manifestation of blood-brain barrier breakdown. And more often than not, the patients would not be symptomatic, but occasionally they would have symptoms to suggest tumour progression. And there have been a number of attempts to try and distinguish the two with various advanced imaging techniques, uh, such as perfusion imaging, such as MR spectroscopy. But of course, what you've also got there are is viable tumour at the same time, which is being treated. So it actually can be very difficult to tell. And, and for that reason, many oncology centres treating patients with glioblastomas and other gliomas will try and avoid doing a relatively early post-treatment scan simply because we don't want to really muddy the waters, particularly if the patient is well. And sometimes um, before this was really recognised as, as a quite a common phenomenon, patients would often be switched to different types of chemotherapy on the premise that they had early progression of their tumour when actually it was pseudoprogression. And this usually settles down without any change of treatment about six months later. And in fact, now that the treatment of glioblastoma encompasses a six months of adjuvant temozolomide after the completion of chemoradiation, we try, as I said, to defer imaging for as long as possible uh, so that we can, we can really be sure that if we do see uh, radiological 
progression, then it becomes less and less likely to be pseudo-progression. Sometimes it, it is very difficult to tell, though. It's a long time, isn't it, to wait for that scan for, for people who yes, have their it treatment? Is. It is, it is. But it's even worse when you're in a situation where the scan looks much worse, the patient yes. feels absolutely fine, but of course they have now the seeds of, of worry and doubt about whether their tumour is progressing um, can't come into, the, into their mind. Yeah, absolutely. And then the later complications, so things happening six months and afterwards and potentially occurring years or decades later, do you think those are different causative mechanisms? Do you think there's a different balance in what's causing those? Well, absolutely. Uh, the, the two main late complications are radionecrosis, which is, you know, as its name implies, a death of brain tissue um, caused by um, essentially irreversible neuronal cell death together with, you know, inflammation. And then encephalopathy, leukoencephalopathy, which is a predominantly, as its name implies, a white matter, progressive white matter disorder, similar to other toxic leukoencephalopathies that we come across in neurology. And these complications, unlike the early delayed radiation encephalopathies, are largely irreversible, in some cases uh, are fatal. Radionecrosis is a very uh, big problem for radiotherapists treating secondary brain tumours, brain metastases, Nowadays, there's been a, uh, a move away from the use of whole brain radiotherapy to using stereotactic radiosurgery for the management of single or oligometastases. And it's not uncommon because you're administering a high dose of radiation uh, to a very limited field. It's not uncommon to develop radionecrosis as a complication of the SRS. And there are ways and means we, we use various imaging techniques to try and distinguish the two. Yeah. And uh, Michael, am I right in thinking that the, the radionecrosis is usually non-neurological cancers? So Jeremy's mentioned brain metastases, but do you see it in others who've had treatment for other cancers? Yes. Yeah, so we have an understanding of the risk factors for radiation necrosis. And so as you'd expect, it relates to the radiation dose delivered. It relates to the volume of brain tissue which receives that potentially high dose. And it also relates to the use of concomitant chemotherapy agents. And so the literature uh, for head and neck cancers, particularly nasopharyngeal cancers, just by their anatomical location, there's quite a literature within these tumour sites of patients having symptomatic radiation necrosis. And I think one of the things to, to add to what Jeremy has said is we often see asymptomatic radiation necrosis or changes that are associated with that in patients, particularly after stereotactic radiosurgery, um, there, there's a smaller proportion of patients who are symptomatic from their radiation necrosis. But, but you're right, Amy, in answer to your question, other tumours sites are associated with radiation necrosis, but they have to be near the brain. So we're talking primarily about head and neck or base of skull tumour sites. Yeah. And Jeremy, clinically, it's indistinguishable from tumour recurrence. Yes. How, do you, how do you tell the difference? Well, radiologically, it can be almost indistinguishable. So, so we, we use a number of techniques. The, the, the simplest one is time. Essentially, radiation necrosis usually uh, settles over time. Not always, but uh, whereas tumour progression, as it implies, will gradually grow over time. More recently, a new 
MRI sequence, or rather a combination of MRI sequences, using uh, early five-minute and later one-hour T1-weighted MR scans after the injection of gadolinium, uh, and then subtracting uh, one from the other, can be used to help distinguish radiation necrosis against uh, tumour progression. Uh, This is known as TRAMS, uh, which stands for Treatment Response Assessment Maps, or another term, Contrast Clearance Analysis. Uh, And this technique has been developed and is now beginning to enter into the standard clinical radiological arena for the follow-up of patients with brain metastases and allows us to more confidently diagnose radiation necrosis or tumour progression. And there's actually a lovely example in the article itself, which was sent to me by Professor Yael Marder at the Sheba Medical Centre. Yael is a physicist who actually developed the technique. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And it's a, it's a great picture that shows you really nicely how the imaging can be, can be so helpful. Can we talk just briefly, you mentioned the uh, radiation vasculopathy. Michael, how's the radiation acting differently on, uh, on blood vessels? Or is it acting differently on blood vessels? And how does that fit into the sort of mechanisms we understand? So in terms of the, the kind of physics and chemistry of it, it's not acting differently at all, but it's the kind of ongoing cascade of effects within endothelial cells that is going to be different to those within neuronal cells. And so our understanding of how radiation impacts the vasculature has developed, as you'd expect, over time. Um, Initially, the vasculature was thought to be very radiation resistant and essentially could be ignored in radiotherapy delivery and planning. But we understand more and more about the effects, um, particularly later on from the delivery of radiotherapy and ionising radiation to blood vessels. We know that there's an increased late risk of um, cerebrovascular disease and atherosclerosis, and that risk increases based on a patient's underlying stroke risk, the risk factors of which your audience will be well aware of. So it's a relative increase based on the absolute risk for that patient um, already. You know, in addition to that, there are vascular effects that can affect the, the younger patient population. But things like moya moya are do have a slightly different etiology and there are there are certain predispositions that patients can have to these types of vascular complications, for example, neurofibromatosis type one. And these these are thought to relate to the shear stress in the large blood vessels around the circle of Willis to the shear stress caused by blood flow on the endothelial cells and those blood vessels and the effect that radiation has on those blood vessels and the fact that that shear stress can then lead to later effects such as moya moya disease, which is, I I would say, a very significant and severe and rare impact from radiation in that patient group, but I think points towards the types of perhaps more subtle effects that we may see on our wider and older patient population. That's really interesting. I, I was I had been completely naive to the association with NF one and radiation moya moya, and it's um, I was really interested to read that. Very briefly, just before we we move on, I wanted to talk about Smart Syndrome. Jeremy, I vividly remember seeing a case of this as an SHO, one of your patients who'd had resected glioma and and had devastating Smart Syndrome. Maybe you could talk us through what Smart Syndrome is. And I uh, I found this one much harder to fit to a sort of framework of pathology. Is it yes. a bit of everything? So, so smart, I think the first thing to say about smart syndrome is we don't really know what it is. But the longer I've been in practice, the uh, more diverse 
syndromes or manifestations of this syndrome I, I've seen. So first of all, SMART stands for stroke-like migraine attacks after radiation therapy. Clinically, they have to be focal neurological deficits, in other words, a stroke-like syndrome, which may or may not be associated with headache and is often also associated with seizures. And sometimes it doesn't quite fit either a typical transient ischemia attack or a typical focal seizure. So it's got a sort of a bit, a bit of both. It used to be thought of as something relatively rare, not particularly serious, often reversible and not a particularly uh, big problem for the patient. But I think as time goes on, I've seen more and more examples of absolutely devastating SMART syndrome. And um, as I said, one of the uh, my, my, one of my sort of most prominent patients, that the scans are in the article, this was a patient who'd had a left frontal glioma treated with a standard of radiation treatment and then some chemotherapy after that for relatively early progression. And the patient had done very well until about three or four years later when they developed their first episode. And then they had subsequently increasingly severe episodes on an almost a rhythmic basis every 15 months, characterized by abrupt loss of speech and right-sided weakness. And the final episode, which was by far and away the most severe, was aphasia, hemiplegia, and ongoing intractable focal motor seizures. And this patient was in hospital for many weeks, and after recovery was left with considerable aphasia or dysphasia um, and a mild right hemiparesis, but was never the same after that. And the reason I think it's important to recognize is because the imaging is sometimes normal, particularly if you do it very early, but sometimes it is very characteristically abnormal and it shows a combination of peel enhancement, so very subtle enhancement within the actual sulci of the brain, together with more generalized swelling and diffuse high signal on the T2 and flare sequences. And these are reversible and if you do perfusion imaging, you sometimes see very high perfusion, as in this particular patient, but sometimes you also see hypoperfusion. And I think this gives us some clue as to what may be going on, that there is a disordered autoregulation of the cerebral vasculature caused in some way as a delayed effect of brain radiation. And the brain radiotherapy can have occurred a few years before, even decades before. It's almost as if the vasculature has some type of memory for the radiotherapy and has been left with some disordered autoregulation. And there isn't any particular treatment, specific treatment for SMART. It doesn't seem to respond to steroids, as you might expect. But this particular patient, we tried uh, arginine, which, as you know, is a, an essential amino acid involved in nitric oxide synthesis, which is important for endothelial stabilization. And since this patient has been taking L-arginine, has not had any further attacks. And it's now been at least three years since the last bad one. It's really a very odd one, but it is an important, it is important diagnosis for neurologists to be aware of, as they may well be asked to see these patients acutely with uh, seizures or stroke-like syndromes. Is there any evidence base behind the L-arginine? 
No, none whatsoever, apart from a couple of case reports and my own anecdotal experience. Yeah. But, I, I mean, worth worth a go. It, it, considering you don't need a prescription, you can buy it at the uh, local Holland and Barrett. Um, I think it's worth it. You've um, you've also gone through manifestations in the spinal cord too. I assume the mechanisms here are, are much the same as in the brain, but presumably the cancers that have been treated are different. Michael, what cancers are we usually talking to and, and are we seeing the same process? Yes, Amy. So one thing to say about the spinal cord is that w- we view the spinal cord as having a lower radiation tolerance. So the dose of radiation we are willing to give any volume of the spinal cord tissue is less than we would be willing to deliver to the brain. So what that means is that radiotherapy plans delivered to, for example, lung cancers that may be invading close to the spinal cord or any mediastinal tumours or moving down into the abdomen um, in children, for example, neuroblastoma or or other retroperitoneal tumours. All of these tumours will inevitably require radiation to be delivered very close to the spinal cord. However, the way that radiotherapy is planned is that critical structures such as the spinal cord trump in the radiotherapy planning process the coverage of our targets. So we are we would compromise the coverage of our target volume in order to not overdose critical structures of which the spinal cord would absolutely be very near the top of the list. So in terms of which which tumours we would be talking about, again, kind of starting from the top, we would be again thinking about head and neck cancers because we deliver high doses of radiation with curative intent to these tumours. And then moving down through the thorax, mediastinum, abdomen, and of course, pelvis, by which point we're not really talking about the cord in the same way. And you've, um, again, in the paper for, for listeners, they've, they've gone through beautifully sort of presentations in the peripheral nervous system and, and cranial nerves as well. I just want to pick out a couple of those that I was particularly interested in. Jeremy, the, the lower motor neuron syndrome you describe, you describe a, a motor neuronopathy, which can affect the, the lower limbs. Uh, you also describe a, a frequent hypoglossalopathy and the head drop. Can any or all of those look quite a lot like motor neuron disease? And can that be diagnostically challenging? So, yes, um, I think, first of all, if just think about the lower motor neuron syndrome, as its name implies, um, the upper motor neurons are not involved. So that is one uh, helpful way of distinguishing from more typical ALS. The progression is slightly different in the sense that it can be quite asymmetric and rather stepwise. So often patients, uh, although they have overall a progressive course, it is over many years, rather longer than standard motor neuron disease. And also there may be long periods of apparent stability before another another deterioration. In terms of the the physical signs, uh, as you would expect, you see a combination of weakness, wasting and muscle fasciculations with preserved sensation, although uh, it's important to stress that sensory loss and occasionally sphincter discernments can develop uh, much later. The electromyography is, as you'd expect, shows denervation, sometimes active denervation with preserved uh, sensory action potentials. Um, So really, it's the clinical context that you need to think about. And it's something which we rarely see nowadays, but it usually occurs in patients who've had, for example, 
certain pelvic cancers, some gynecological cancers. The patient that, that really sticks in my mind is a lady who had a Ewing sarcoma of her femur and pelvic bones as a teenager and subsequently developed a progressive uh, lower motor neuron syndrome over the next 20 to 30 years without any upper motor neuron signs or any sensory impairment. Talking about the head drop, you mentioned the head drop. This is complicated because I don't think it's just about nerve damage. It can also be a muscle damage as well, a muscle fibrosis. And I think, yes, of course, you know, dropped head syndrome is is seen in a number of conditions, including motor neuron disease, including myasthenia gravis. But again, it's about the context. It occurs in a patient who's had irradiation in the neck, for example, mantle radiotherapy for Hodgkin's disease, and usually comes on relatively slowly as well. And then, of course, there are no other signs beyond the cervical musculature, because, as Michael implied, the radiation field is where the damage has occurred. And it's not something which is occurring more widely in the nervous system, unlike, for example, motor neuron disease or, or myasthenia. Yeah, that's really helpful. And then um, we sort of touched on this a little with pseudoprogression, but one of my one of the key things that I wanted to, to talk about today was when you have a clinical presentation of a, a particularly a, a cranial neuropathy or a plexopathy, which are the sort of clinical scenarios where I've always got primary malignancy in the back of my mind. Perhaps if you've got a history of cancer that you think might be relevant, how do you know if that's a tumour occurrence or a radiation complication? What are the, the clinical and the investigation things that help you? And if you're not sure, how do you talk to the patient about it? Yeah, so that's a very good question. I guess probably the most common scenario that we see this in is breast cancer and brachial plexopathies. Fortunately, um, we see less and less of this now. Um, the old-fashioned radiation for breast cancer, which encompassed axillary nodes, supraclavicular nodes to high dosages, cause significant damage to the brachial plexus. There are some clinical clues which allow you to distinguish from malignant infiltration. I think, first of all, radiation plexopathies are almost always painless, whereas as you would expect, tumours infiltrating into nerves and plexuses or plexi are usually painful. The neurophysiology can be quite striking in a, a radiation plexopathy. Uh, characteristically, you get uh, myochymic discharges, uh, which we see in about two-thirds of patients in radiation-induced plexopathy, but we don't see them in, in malignant plexopathy. But it can be very difficult, particularly in the early stages, and that's really where imaging is helpful in the sense that uh, we can now, as you know, image uh, the brachial plexus using uh, combinations of standard T1, T2, as well as STIR uh, images. And you can actually sometimes see with infiltration uh, with cancer you can see nodules of enhanced thickening of nerves, which you don't see in radiation fibrosis, in radiation plexopathy. Also, in radiation plexopathy, it's not obviously just the plexus that's involved. You'll get fibrosis and atrophy of surrounding musculature, which you won't necessarily get with malignant infiltration. 
But of course, life is never that simple because of course, these patients will all have had radiation in the past and then have developed uh, malignant infiltration. So it can be very difficult. And sometimes you end up having to do, if you particularly if you do see some enhancement, you end up having to ask your friendly brachial plexus surgeon to do a biopsy in, uh, in very difficult cases. Yes. And are there, are there any treatments that we can use for radiation-related neuropathies? Yes. So the answer is, uh, at the moment, unfortunately, no. There is nothing that's been proven. A number of things have been tried, including antioxidants such as uh, vitamin E. People have tried for radiation necrosis, particularly things like um, in the jaw. There's uh, something called osteonecrosis. People have tried hyperbaric oxygen treatment. Uh, but this is, you know, this is very small print stuff. Unfortunately, we don't have any good treatments for radiation-induced fibrosis. Thank you. That, that's been the most inc- incredibly educational session. I would really like to ask one final question of you both. I always find it really inspiring to hear what it was that drew people into working in their particular subspecialties. And um, I'd really love to hear what it is about neuro-oncology that you enjoy and why you think more uh, oncologists and, and more neurologists, because there aren't very many um, neuro-oncologists, um, should be joining you. Michael, perhaps we could start with you. Yes, yeah, it's a very good question, Amy. So um, I was, well, th- throughout medical school and and my subsequent training, I was interested in, in the brain. And I, as, a, as an SHO, was at Queen Square in the neurology clinics. And I found it all very fascinating, but I was slightly frustrated by the difficulties in offering significantly beneficial treatments. And Jeremy's just alluded to that in in these patients particularly. So I then went across and did some oncology training and and thought that it certainly for me, clinical oncology of brain tumors was a great place to kind of bring together my interest in in the nervous system and in the brain and its function, but also in in a department that can offer sometimes quite a wide variety of treatments both with radiotherapy and also drug treatments for for patients with these with these diseases. And I think in terms of adding something else to what we've discussed, I think we've spent, well, as you'd imagine, that the the time together talking about the ill effects and the late effects of radiation treatment. And I suppose I need to fly the flag just for five seconds to explain why we actually deliver radiation to patients, because at the moment it seems like something that you probably want to avoid. And I think I probably just need to put out there that actually radiation is a really effective treatment for a whole variety of neurological benign and malignant diseases. And despite these late effects and sometimes early effects that that we've been discussing today, it has a really important role to play in the management of conditions without which these patients wouldn't be alive to have the risk of having these late effects. So I think that probably needs to be said at some point too. Yes, I think that's a really important point and, and you know, a delicate balance, isn't it, of counselling patients about treatments and side effects and putting that in the context of what their life expectancy and, and prognosis is. Jeremy, what, what about you? Well, I, I was drawn to neuro-oncology almost serendipitously when I was a registrar at Queen's Square and one of the patients we were looking after was a young man with a brain tumour and I realised I didn't know anything about brain tumours and thought I'd start learning a little bit about it. But as I got more involved in the subject, I realized that this was a really broad and fascinating area of neurology, uh, one which, as you say, is is not often 
done, certainly in this country. Um, and all the skills that we learn as neurologists, history taking, uh, careful neurologic examination, trying to synthesize from a whole lot of different pieces of information, coming to a set of differential diagnoses, knowledge of how to investigate, and also treatment of um, conditions such as epilepsy um, are all sort of germane to the job as a neuro-oncologist. It's diverse, uh, as we've talked about. We I get involved with management of brain tumours all the way through to neurological complications of cancers. There are new treatments coming along for cancers, particularly the immunotherapies, which have brought along their own uh, specific list of neurological complications, which require prompt diagnosis um, and also recognition that it may be something else. And I think last, uh, but probably most importantly, it gives me the opportunity to interact with a whole spectrum of colleagues, clinical oncologists like Michael, uh, which I think a lot of neurologists never really quite have that opportunity to, to speak to people in completely different fields from them and to work together for, for the benefit of the patient. Well, that's wonderful. That's uh, fantastic reasons both for um, for what must be a really satisfying subspecialist interest. Anything else that either of you would like to add as a parting message for our listeners? Yeah, I just I think I'd just like to say first of all that I really appreciate that this article has been chosen uh, for this podcast, and really to to put it out there that. Neurologists have such an important role to play in the management of cancer patients. And let's not forget that over 350,000 new cases of cancer are diagnosed in the United Kingdom every year. Over 20% of patients with cancer will have brain metastases at some point or other neurological complications. So this is not rare hen's teeth neurology. This is get becoming increasingly common with the increasing amount of cancer and diagnostics and treatments in the population. And it's really important, and I'm very grateful to the editors of Practice Neurology, that they've included this type of article to, to widen uh, knowledge and to give people a better sense of, of what we do in neuro-oncology. Thank you. Well said. A reminder to uh, listeners, you can download the full paper from the link in the description below the podcast and you can catch up on this or any other practical neurology podcasts on Apple or Spotify. We'd be delighted to hear your thoughts, especially nice ones, or any suggestions you have for improvement uh, on any of the practical neurology podcasts. So please do feed that back. And thank you all for listening, but most especially to a really sensational double act, Dr. Michael Cosmin and Dr. Jeremy Reese. Thank you. <laughs>